so we are in Galatians. And last week we finished up chapter 3, so we'll get into chapter 4 today. Now, uh, the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4 pretty much talk about liberty and the difference between the law and Torah and liberty we have in Christ. Let me back up and we'll take a run at it. So we'll start in Galatians 3.23, which is the last paragraph of chapter 3 before we go on. And then I'm going to go over to John 8 and several other places before I come back to Galatians. So Galatians 3.23, which we did last week. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the incoming faith could be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Yeshua, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Messiah Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, remember that the problem being addressed by this letter has to do with Messianic Jews of the circumcision party who are following along behind Paul and telling the newly saved Gentiles that there's more to this than what Paul taught you. So this idea down in verse 27, for as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Yeshua. And if you are Messiahs, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that is specifically about the folks that are coming by and saying you've got to be circumcised, which is to say you've got to become Jewish. And what Paul is saying is doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, you are all in Messiah. So the idea that these people are coming by saying that in order to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to become one of us is wrong. That's the argument he's making in that paragraph. Now, we also have in here this idea that we're under a guardian until Messiah comes. So I want to switch over now to John 8, pick it up in verse 31. So Yeshua said to the Jews who believed in him, so these are disciples who are following him around, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Now that's a bit ironic since they are under the Roman occupation, but we'll leave that for a minute. What they really mean is we are not personal slaves, even though we happen to be living in an oppressed place. So, Yeshua answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. 
and you what you have heard from your father. And then he goes on, says they're children of the devil. So what he's talking here is he is talking to Jews. And he is saying that you are slaves to sin. And if you listen to my word and you hear what I have to say, I will set you free from that. And of course, they, not understanding what he's talking about, say, well, we're not slaves, and so forth. So the idea here is Yeshua is saying something very similar to what Paul is saying. That the Jews in Jerusalem are enslaved. They're slaves to sin. Now the question becomes, why are they slaves to sin, and what is the sin they're slaved to? So now let's back up to John 5. I'm sorry to jump around on you on this, but I think it's kind of important. So John 5, 44. He is talking to Jews here. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So what he's talking about is social media in Israel. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So what Yeshua is saying to them is their problem is they have abandoned Moses. And they are rolling their own. And that's what we now today call the oral Torah. And all of the extra biblical Jewish writings that they regard as being binding. Now, Tom said something interesting on Shabbat. You guys weren't here. We were talking about changing the Sabbath. I went into the riff that I got from Ron Dart, which is to say the Sabbath is a big deal in the Bible. And if somebody were going to change the Sabbath, I believe that the Messiah himself, after his resurrection, would have had authority to do so. So he raises from the dead, walks into a locked room, says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I've risen from the dead, here's the deal, guys. The big deal now is we worship on Sunday because that's the anniversary of my resurrection, no longer Saturday. I firmly believe that he had the authority to do that had he wished. He didn't do it. Tom followed up with, ah, the Catholic Church believes that Peter, who was given the keys, did have the authority to do that, and that Peter changed it. And what I meant to say at the time, but I did not, because I got sidetracked into going somewhere else, is that's exactly what the rabbis did. The idea that a man can change the Torah is the same thing as what has gotten the rabbis off into a ditch changing Moses. They believe that they have authority to do this stuff, just as the Catholic Church believed that via Peter, they had the authority to change the Sabbath. So it's exactly the same human situation in the Catholic Church and in Judaism. And what Yeshua is doing with these guys is saying, no, you don't. And he's saying to them here in John 5, 44 and following, you guys say that you depend on Moses. But Moses accuses you because you're not, in fact, following Moses. 
You've now got something of your own that you say is based on Moses, but it is not truly Moses. And so then he goes down to chapter 8, which we started with, and he says, I will tell you the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what he says then is, obviously, you are in bondage to sin because you have changed the words of Moses to suit your convenience, just like the church has changed the words of Yeshua to suit its convenience. And they call on Peter as their authority, and the Pharisees call on the elders and the sages as their authority. But it's exactly the same thing that's going on. The point I'm making here is Yeshua is making a big deal of the fact that these guys are in serious error by changing Moses. And by changing Moses, they have fallen into sin, which means they've fallen into slavery. Paul talks about that in Romans, where he talks about your slave to whom you serve. And we'll come back now to Galatians, and I want to read Galatians 4 in the light of what I have just said. Tom's comment, which I'll paraphrase, with which I completely agree, is the authority that was given to the elders by Moses and the authority that was given to the apostles by Yeshua is judicial authority. Theoretically, a judge interprets the law in light of a situation. If you have a baby that is born on a Friday, do you circumcise him on Shabbat, which is the eighth day? Well, circumcision is work. But the scripture says do it on the eighth day. But the scripture says don't work. What do you do? You make a judicial decision. And by the way, that decision has gone both ways in Jewish history. For a long time, they waited till the ninth day. And I believe now they go ahead and circumcise on the eighth. That is an exercise of what I believe is legitimate judicial authority. However, for a judge to go in and say, Sabbath has now changed, or it's now okay to steal, or whatever, exceeds a judge's authority. And that's the point Tom was making. And one of the reasons that human beings do that is because the Torah keeps you from doing stuff that you'd really like to do. It says you can't eat bacon. Well, but I like bacon. And so you get a ruling from a priest or a rabbi or an apostle that says, eh, maybe. And what they've done is they have changed Moses for the convenience of people. It happens slowly. The change from Saturday Sabbath to Sunday Sabbath in the church was a result of anti-Semitism. We don't want to be Jews. We don't want to be associated with them. So we're going to move the day. But there's no scriptural authority for it. And people reading Paul, who is fairly complicated, who are looking for a reason why they don't have to worship on Saturday, they'd rather play golf or do something else, will take Paul's words and not twist them, but interpret them to mean things that they don't mean in context. So now, having laid all that groundwork, let's go into chapter 4. What we have done up until now is we've been under a guardian until Christ came. And now down in chapter 4, we're going to continue that theme. I mean, the heir, as long as a child, is no different from a slave. 
though he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a wound, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent a spirit of his son into your hearts, saying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Now, this is going to take some unpacking. First off, understand that Paul is writing an angry letter. And so he is using very strong examples. So the heir in a family is, in fact, very different from a slave. He may have a guardian, a schoolmaster, and so forth, that disciplines him and makes him study his lessons, but he's very different than a slave. So this use of the heir is no different than a slave is, again, an angry, intense example. Because Paul is more than half ticked as he's writing this letter. However, the key here, and I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, the question is, who tells you what to do? So in the case of a child who is under a guardian, the guardian tells him what to do. In the case of a slave under a master, the master tells him what to do. In the case of an employee under a manager, the manager tells him what to do. An employee is not a slave, but the employee does what the manager tells him. Somebody else is directing his activities. Once you are free, you direct your own activities. So you get to decide what you're going to do as opposed to doing things that are assigned to you or things that are forced upon you. And it can be as hard and rigorous as at under a whip, in the case of a slave, or it can be as gentle and loving as a child under a parent or a guardian. But the point is, in all those cases, somebody else is telling you what to do. When you become free, quote unquote, you get to decide what to do. You are no longer having somebody tell you what to do. And as I say, this telling what to do can be gentle and benign for your own good. I mean, it's not necessarily rigorous. So he's going to use several examples. He's going to use a child and a guardian. He's going to use a slave and a free woman. These examples he's going to use is the difference between someone who does what he wants to do as opposed to someone who does what someone else tells him to do. Down in verse 3. In the same way, when we also were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I'm going to put a bookmark there because he's going to come up with the elementary principles of the world in the next paragraph, and it's going to be clearer what he means. And the problem with it here, in this paragraph, is we. What's going to become clear in the next paragraph that the elemental principles of the world are pagan gods. But when he says we up here, Paul was never under a pagan god. I'm not sure what that means in Paul's context. You know, when he says we, he's including himself. When he comes down here, he's going to say you, and it becomes much clearer. So verse 8. Formerly, 
When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Remember, these are former pagans, Gentiles. So what he's saying here is you used to be enslaved to what I would call the principalities and powers. You know, the prince of Persia, those kinds of folks. Now, what he's saying, however, is interesting here. What he's saying is, is if you go back under the oral Torah, you are in the same situation that you were when you were pagans. And that's why I say, up above, he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Down here, it's very clear. He's talking about Gentiles who used to be pagans. So going back to where he says we up in the previous paragraph, what I'm suggesting to you is he is including his time when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and was persecuting the church and believed in the oral law. So what he's saying here is if you put yourself under these Pharisees, you are in fact going to go back to what I was freed from in Messiah. That's one of the reasons I led with the passages in John, where John is talking to the people of whom Paul used to be a member. Paul used to be one of the people that Yeshua is talking about in John. And what Yeshua says to these people is, I'll tell you the truth and the truth will set you free. And they say, wait a minute, we aren't enslaved to anybody. So yeah, you are, you're enslaved to sin. And he also says, you guys are depending on Moses. But I'll tell you what, Moses is looking at you and he is your accuser because you are not in fact following Moses. That was why I led with that riff as we started. Yeshua himself is saying to the people Paul used to be, you guys are enslaved to something besides Moses and it isn't good. You've got several problems with the Pharisees. One, you've got just plain old human corruption which is endemic to all humanity. The other thing you've got is they have changed things and have become convinced themselves that the changes are legitimate because the changes have happened over a thousand years. It's just like in the Sunday church. The changes over 2,000 years have been gradual and nobody has come up and said, you know, we got to put bales above on the altar or anything like that but there have been gradual changes that have resulted in negating the word of Christ. It's the same thing that the Pharisees were doing with Moses. And many of them were sincere. Don't get me wrong, a lot of them were dishonest because you know, they were the deep state. So a lot of them were in fact dishonest, but there were a lot of them were simply wrong. And in, in this Matthew passage, I suspect that he is calling out those who are sort of like Joe Biden who says he's a Catholic but pushes all sorts of abomination that even the church can't stand. That's different than a parish priest somewhere that worships on Sunday, prays to Mary, thinks he's changing the wafers into body and blood. That's stuff that has happened gradually over the centuries and he's sincere about that.
I believe he's sincerely wrong, but he is sincere. He's not in rebellion, if you will. There's a lot of spirits out there. And so the fact that you get something from a spirit is not dispositive. So anyway, everybody with me so far about what we're talking about with the weak and elemental principles of the world and so forth. So verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Now, my thesis here is he is not going against Moses, which means I don't think he's talking about Passover, unleavened bread, Shavuot, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. Those are days that are commanded by God and Moses. Pagans have their own holidays. Halloween, Easter, Christmas, to name just a few. Jews have their holidays. The Fast of Gedaliah, Straits of Tammuz, Tisha B'Av, etc. So there's all sorts of days out there that are not part of Moses. I don't know what days he's talking about here. Whether they're going back to the pagan days, and that was the problem we had in Colossians, where they were getting flack from their former pagan friends for not celebrating Halloween, or whatever the equivalent was. Here, I don't know what the days are. But again, my thesis is he is not anti-Moses, so he is not talking about Shabbat or any of God's appointed times. If you are looking to get out from under Moses, then you can read these things as oblique references to Passover and Shavuot and so forth. It is my belief that if someone was trying to change one of the feasts of God as described in the Torah, he would be explicit, not vague and not oblique. And in fact, the Catholic Church did invalidate a lot of those. They basically moved them. Verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, as Messiah Yeshua. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So he's reminding them of the time that they had together, of course. And verse 17, they make much of you, but to no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. What I think is being said there, I'm guessing you know, I could be wrong. What they're doing is they are coming in and saying that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. As we've said many times, adult circumcision is a big deal. 
And so if adult circumcision is required to enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is going to be a whole lot more sparse. So what he may be saying here is these guys, by coming and telling you that you have to get circumcised, are seeking to exclude you from the club. And then you're going to be outside of the club looking in, and they are going to be the big deal because they're inside of the club, and you're going to be second-class citizens because you're outside of the club. I think that's maybe what he's saying. They're setting them up to be outside looking in on the Jews who have the circumcision, who have the covenants, who have all of this. All right, so now down to 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written, notice, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically, notice allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All right, let me unpack that, starting at the bottom and working back up. The children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. That means that the Gentiles are going to be more numerous than the Jews and I've said this before in this venue, the Gentiles were always going to come into the kingdom of God. It was always God's plan to save the whole world, not just the Jews. So this idea of the children of the desolate one being more than the one who has a husband, it's Gentiles are going to way outnumber the Jews. Now, let's back up here. You all know the story of Hagar and Sarah, two covenants. One of the things that is going on, and I have done this in this place 37 times, this will be number 38. The idea at Sinai was as Israel stood at the foot of the mountain, it was to be the consummation of a marriage. And at the consummation of a marriage, the man, male, puts seed into the woman with the intention of passing on life. God's word is seed. So what he wanted to do was speak his word into the heart of his bride. The bride says after the first two words, stop. If we hear his voice anymore, we will die. Moses, you go up, listen to him, come down, we'll listen to you, we cannot hear the voice of God. At that point, we have tablets of stone, which is to say the bride has a heart of stone. The words are the same. What he was going to speak into the heart of his bride is exactly what he wrote on the tablets of stone. The words are not any different. The covenant is not any different. The problem is where it's written. It's not designed to be written on tablets of stone. It's designed to be written on hearts of flesh. In that sense, then, the covenant at Sinai 
leads to someone telling you what you're supposed to do. Remember I said earlier that the child who's somebody who's under somebody else, somebody is telling him what to do as opposed to him doing what he wants to do. So the tablets of stone then represent God telling them, this is what I want you to do. The new covenant, it's been ratified, sealed in the blood. We're not yet having it. We haven't gained the possession of it, if you will. What the new covenant says is in Jeremiah 31, 31, I will write my law on their hearts. The word there is Torah. I will write my Torah on their hearts. Once the Torah is written on your heart, you now do what is right because you want to do what is right because that's your nature. So you are no longer a slave. In Ezekiel, the metaphor is I will take the heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. So the metaphor is always the heart. In Deuteronomy, it's circumcision of the heart. And the idea then of the new covenant is the Torah will be written on a heart of flesh where it is designed to be written. And at that point, you are no longer under guardians. You are no longer a slave. You are no longer a master. You get to do whatever you want. But because the Torah is on your heart, you want to do what's right. But it's inside of you coming out, not outside of you being imposed. The stupid little example I use every time I do this is my mother wrote on my heart, brush your teeth before you go to bed. My mother is dead and buried. I still brush my teeth every night before I go to bed because I want to. It is now in my nature to brush my teeth before I go to bed. No longer under my mother, no longer under anybody. That's just what I do because I want to. The idea here, when he's talking about the two covenants, one, Hagar, which is slavery, the other, the one in heaven, which is freedom, what he's talking about is who is telling you what to do and not to do. If it's a bunch of tablets of stone, it's external. If it's written on your heart, it's internal. And you are no longer under a guardian, you're no longer a slave, you're no longer under a master, your character has changed. And by the way, the New Covenant is an Old Testament concept. It always talks about writing the Torah on your heart. The words that are written don't change. What changes is where they're placed. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. Which is to say, Isaac and Ishmael were at odds, as were Jacob and Esau. And what he's saying here is, you folks are children of promise, therefore the circumcision party, who are children of Hagar, are persecuting you. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So the idea is reject what they are trying to sell you. Just reject it. Cast it out. Have I made all that so it's reasonably understandable? Clear? 
Certainly when he's talking about the covenant at Sinai, that is the written Torah. The Hagar and Sarah example. He's talking about the written Torah there. No question whatsoever. And what he's saying is because the Torah was written on tablets of stone instead of on the human heart, it is slavery until you get the Torah written where it's supposed to be. You're being directed from somebody outside. When he's talking about the elemental spirits and all that kind of stuff up above, he's talking about the oral Torah, I believe. Or he may be talking about their pagan roots. Paul is not easy to understand. And the problem that we have with this is, God bless Paul, but couldn't God have picked somebody who could write a clearer sentence? Obviously very smart, very educated, and Peter has trouble with it. So you've got two problems. One, you've got a translation problem because he wrote it in Greek, thinking in Hebrew, writing in Greek, translated into English. And as George was saying, there are several different translations. And yes, I do check different translations when I come up against difficult things. Compounded with that, 30 years ago, I used to be on an internet discussion group before Twitter and TikTok, message boards, and I was arguing with a couple of devout Sunday Christians. I mean, these guys knew the Bible better than I did. They were devout, they cared, etc. They were not going to give up bacon, just weren't going to do it. And a lot of the misinterpretation of Paul has to do with, wait a minute, does that mean I can't have bacon and shrimp? Or does that mean I can't play golf on Saturday? But wait a minute, Little League is always on Saturday. There's always reasons why being in a minority is inconvenient. It just is. And so the whole world is playing golf and t-ball and basketball and all that stuff on Saturday, and you're sitting in here, and then when you get to play over there, they're all in church. That's a legitimate minority problem, and we are a minority. So it's very tempting to listen to a facile explanation of Paul that makes bacon okay, that makes Sunday worship okay, that makes whatever else okay. And as I say, the origins of this go clear back to the first century when the church and the synagogue split and the church was adamant. We don't want to be Jews. We don't want to be thought of as Jews. We want to be Christians. We're not Jewish. And so you have then this drift plus all the heresies, you got Marcion and so forth that says the only thing in the Bible that matters anymore is the book of Luke and Paul's letters, which I have translated for you conveniently according to my understanding. He was declared a heretic, but that doesn't mean his ideas went away. He was very popular. I mean, don't even start with Halloween and Easter bunnies and Christmas trees and Understand that a lot of that is marketing. So you send missionaries into Norway and they've got a Yule festival. Have had a Yule festival since long before the missionaries showed up. So if we're going to sell this, we'll do something with that Yule festival. 
a lot of it is just marketing. Sunday Christians are not bad people. They have been taught by people they trust. Mrs. Smith taught me this in Sunday school when I was six years old. And we made Easter bunnies and put felt Easter bunnies on the, the felt board with the eggs. And we, what are you telling me? Mrs. Smith was a witch? A pagan? No. And so you trust the people and, and you don't question a lot of it, especially since a lot of the church explicitly says, you really ought to stay out of the Old Testament because that doesn't really apply to you. I mean, you can read Isaiah 53, that's okay. Everybody wants to do what he wants to do and be declared righteous in the process. If I have a Black Lives Matter sign on my lawn and a Ukrainian flag on my Twitter thing, I am righteous. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. And so this desire to be ratified in the things that you actually want to do sells. So if you were to go down south and say, crawdads and bacon, they're right out. You wouldn't get invited to anything, for one thing. But what do you mean? I love Jesus. Well, I know you do. But he also says, don't eat that stuff. But wait a minute, it doesn't say that. And Paul says that the law is dead, and that's all back in the law. So that doesn't apply to me. I've heard those arguments, and you have too. Jesus made all fools clean. Peter and the sheep. The sheep came down and said, Peter, rise and eat. That's just the way we are. It's very human. And as I say, Sunday believers are not bad people. But I just am of the opinion that they're not correct. And I am also of the opinion that it matters. If it didn't matter, God wouldn't have written it down. So, do with that whatever seems good to you.